Back in March 2021, the Stalrat sailing ship, which had been up until then ferrying passengers and motorcycles around the Darien Gap, made its final voyage. Except this voyage wasn't around the Darien, it was to Cuba. And one rider, embarking on his own round-the-world trip, loaded himself and his motorcycle on the Stalrat to make a side trip to Cuba. After all, the pandemic was in full swing and Cuba was already on his list. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Googletech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. Sam Jamie Z and uh, I started this trip from Denver, Colorado, and uh, the plan is to uh, be on the road for the next few years. Jamie, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Well, thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. This trip that you're on right now, you're in Mexico right now. This trip has sort of been in the works for how long? Eight years. I uh, started planning and saving in 2013. And, in 2013. Uh, yeah, it's, it's been a long time in coming. Do you usually take a long time to do things? No. Um, you know, usually I've, I've got some ideas of maybe some upcoming stuff. Uh, when I was in college, I always kind of planned out my summers and I would take a summer trip somewhere. Uh, and, but when it came to this trip, I decided quite a while ago that I really wanted to do something big and I knew it was going to take a long time to, the, the, the money was the problem, the financial aspect of it, trying to finance a, a multi-year trip. And I just had to, that was going to take a long time to save the money up. And uh, if I wanted to do it or it would never happen. Well, well, back in your old life, when you first came up with the idea of, for this trip, were you already a rider? Oh yeah. So you've been riding yep, for I, a long time. Uh, not a long time. Um, I got my first street bike in 2005 when I was, oh, let's see how old would I would have been there in my thirties. Um, I had a history of riding ATVs and, and, 
go-karts and dirt bikes and stuff as a, as a kid, but uh, got into street bikes in my early thirties and just found out pretty quickly that I really liked traveling by motorcycle. So I took a few, you know, the weekend trips like everybody does. And then I started taking some longer trips and um, my big trip was uh, a three month trip in 2007 where I came down to Mexico and, and, uh, and parts of Central America as well. And that really put the seed in my head where I thought, Oh, I, I need to do something big. Mm. How long was that trip? Uh, it was three to somewhere in the range of three to four months. Oh, I see. So that was a pretty good trip. Way, way oh yeah. Back then. Yeah. That it, it, that <laughs> was, that was a, a, a good time for me. I really enjoyed it. That's one of those ones where you, when you come back, you have trouble going back to work because you've discovered Absolutely. a whole new life. God, man, coming back is the hardest part. What did you do? Um, I used to be a casino dealer. A casino which, dealer. Wow. Yeah, it really. It works well for my my lifestyle because uh, it's not the kind of job that, you know, it's not long term. I can come and go and kind of get a job wherever I want. And What's it like to be a casino dealer? Is that high stress? <laughs> No, well, not for me. I know a lot of my coworkers, they complain about the stress because you are dealing with public uh, and, you know, all the different personalities that come with that. But uh, for me, it's it's easy. And I leave my work at work. Uh, I come home and I don't ever think about it. And uh, I'm naturally introverted. So being a casino dealer has kind of helped me open up a little bit. It's a bit of therapy in that sense. but uh, I, I enjoy it. I like it. And, and it works well because it's so flexible. Mm. It's, a, it's an interesting job. And I think it's really cool. But the, you said dealing with the public, though. But you're not just dealing with the public. You're dealing with the public who's losing money, which oh. is one of the most stressful things for people. <laughs> you know, that's overplayed, uh, to use a pun. Uh, most people are there just to have a good time. Uh, you know, I, I, I think a lot of people have this perception that I'm constantly being berated because people are losing, but the vast majority of people, they come to the casino, they're having a couple of drinks, they're having a good time. We're having fun. You know, it's, it's pretty rare that, that people get out of, out of line. So that Mm. that's rarely an issue. It's mostly fun. I'm one of those people who has the, has a little trouble understanding how it's fun to watch your money go away. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't imagine sitting around a campfire, lighting, uh, you know, $10 bills on fire, throwing, <laughs> throwing them in the fire going, yeah, that was fun. <laughs> uh, Jim, I agree with you. I, I'm, I'm the same as you. I don't gamble, but uh, as far as a profession, it, it works pretty well. So being a dealer, can you give us any inside tips? Is there any tips that you, you can, you can tell us that, so that uh, next time, if anyone goes to a gamble, they could have an inside edge or is that illegal? Well, my, uh, <laughs> my typical advice is don't play. <laughs> <laughs> and that is honest, valid <laughs> advice, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, if, if you go in there with the idea that you're just there to have a good time and you have a couple of drinks, you have fun with your friends, you know, you interact with the dealer. Uh, I mean, most of the dealers are, are there to have fun as well. So um, but as far as like strategy and, and whatnot, I think for most people, it's not even worth because, you know, uh, I often compare it to like going to a bar and you don't study before you go to a bar. Uh, mm. And that's how you should approach going to the casino. Just go there to have a good time. Don't worry about winning or losing. And uh, so that's my advice. 
it's stacked against you, obviously. I mean, look at the building, look at the overhead. <laughs> obviously, you know, your your chances are much lower. And my thought process is always with it, it's a guaranteed loss eventually. You may win once, twice, three times, whatever the case is. But overall, in the long run, that, that overhead is going to be taking all your money. Oh, absolutely. Yep. And so you have to have that in mind. And it's it's the people that don't accept that, that think that they can win. Um, that's where you get those people who, who that get mad and, mm-hmm. and get upset about losing is Beat the system. because I think they walk in the door with this thought process that I'm, I'm going to be- win. I'm going to beat the game. Right. And that's just the wrong attitude. How did you get a job as a dealer? It was pretty random. Uh, I grew up in Minnesota and when I moved out of my parents' house, I moved into a rural part of the state where there was, uh, a native American owned casino and, put a job application in there and they called and asked me if I wanted to go through a dealer school and sure, why not? And I've been doing it ever since. So how many years? Since I was uh, 18 uh, and I'm 47 now. So (laughs) almost 30. You came up with the idea for this, for this trip to do a round the world trip. That's what it's supposed to be, correct? (laughs) Yes, eventually. (laughs) But you talked about money. You talked about how it was going to cost a, a lot of money for you. How did you do your, your first budget? How, how did you first figure out how much money you needed to do this? Well, I know from my trip in 2007, uh, where I took three months and came down to Mexico, uh, I spent about $25 per day on that trip. And so that was kind of my baseline. And I, I knew it was going to cost me significantly more than that because, uh, well, it was 15 years ago, so prices have gone up. But also... On that trip, I never had to transport my bike anywhere, uh, which is a major cost. I never had to replace my chain or tires or brake pads or anything like that. Mm. So I knew there was going to be some additional costs. So basically, I doubled that. So I, I took $50 a day as my, as my budget for this trip. And that's where I set my savings goal. And what was the total? What did you, what did you come up with? Uh, so I budgeted for three years. And at $50 a day, it's about $60,000. About 60,000 US. Now, at the time, when you, when you started, when you got real serious about this, you had a girlfriend. I did. And, and that was a, sort of a, a part of your save. You guys were saving together to do this. Yes. Um, she was actually the inspiration because uh, by myself, I don't think I would have thought I could do it. And um, she told me we could. She said, let's do it. Let's put some money together. I want to do this. Why did you think that you couldn't do it? Like, well, why is it, why is it you needed her to, to sort of validate things for you? Oh, it just seemed so big. And I'd never sat down to think how much it would cost. And it just seemed like the people that I had known to make such a trip, you know, they were living off their retirement or they were, you know, they had a, a some sort of windfall, either a, um, an inheritance or, you know, they had a better job than I did or that sort of thing. And it just seemed, mm-hmm. it just seems so monumental that I never thought I'd be able to take a trip like that. You know, sure. I could take a couple of months and go to Mexico, but to take two or three years and, and ride around the world, I just didn't think that was within my grasp. And it was through her that I realized that, no, this is something that I can do. It's a huge amount of money. I mean, no matter how to look at it. I mean, to pay for life every day and save for something three years down the road, it's a, it's a big chunk of money to put aside. Uh, absolutely. And 
yeah, I've, you know, initially when we started, I think we were planning on saving for three or four years to get to that amount. And, uh, and then of course, after she backed out of the trip and I was saving on my own, I knew it was going to take me a lot longer. And I just kept having to push my start date back, which of course that's, you know, that's something that you shouldn't do. Uh, I've heard people on your show, you know, one of their pieces of advice is set a date and go. Mm-hmm. And it just kept having to push my own start date back because my set, you know, I'd have to use my savings. Life happens. A car breaks down or, you know, things happen that I had to pay for that. I I'd have to take money out of my trip savings. And, uh, and eventually I just decided, okay, I have to go. And, uh, and then of course that was 2020 and we all know what happened then. <laughs> well, well, let's go back to your girlfriend. Your girlfriend decided to, her, I think her name is Brenda. Brenda. Yep. She decided to back out. What went, what went wrong there? I don't really know. Um, I think she never really wanted to go. I think it was just something that helped her connect with me. Uh, yeah, I'm not very good at relationships and especially that one, but yeah, I, I really don't know what happened. Um, she seemed really enthusiastic about it. And we even talked about, I, I wanted to make sure that she would be comfortable just sleeping in a tent or traveling in, uh, less than ideal conditions, you know, maybe going days without showers and, that sort of thing. We watched some videos and, and looked at some pictures of other people traveling and she seemed like she'd be interested in it. But I, I, I really think in the end, she never was that interested. And I don't know what, what happened. Uh, she just decided she didn't want to go and she asked for her portion of the savings back and we never talked about it again. It was at the end of the relationship at that point. Basically, yes. In my mind, I knew it was over. Um, I moved, we, we had been living together and I moved out within a few weeks and, and then it was around that time. So that, at that time I was living in Memphis, Tennessee, and, uh, that also encouraged me to leave Memphis. And that's where I ended up in Colorado. And when I moved to Colorado, the casino market in Colorado, in Denver, it's, it's pretty good money. So when I got a job out there and was making essentially twice as what I was making back in, uh, in Memphis, that's when I realized, Hey, I, I can still save for this trip. I can still do this. It might take me a little longer, but, uh, I can do this. Up to that point, what, what had you done to save just money or were you, were you getting a bike and gear and everything else together? Uh, at that point, just money, because I knew I was several, several years away from, uh, you know, from leaving. So there was no point in getting a bike and gear and, and that sort of thing. I started researching. I kind of was getting an idea of what I wanted, what kind of bike I wanted to get and, and, you know, looking at camping gear and uh, starting to sketch out places I wanted to visit and that sort of thing. But there was no boots on the ground until maybe a year out. How do you stay focused over such a long period of time? You know, when everybody else is going out and spending money and you're driving an old car and whatever <laughs> it is you're doing to save money. I think you were, you had a 16 year old car or something at one point. Yeah, actually uh, I just sold it. I sold it a couple of weeks ago. Finally. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so, so I mean, how do you deal with that and, and keep that goal and, and not succumb to society's pressure of saying, Hey, you know, that car doesn't look good on you. Uh, well, that's, that's the challenge. Um, so you have to be, 
very focused on the, on the end goal. And I always try to keep that in mind. Um, and I, I'm not the kind of person, like I said, I, I am fairly introverted, so I'm not going out. I'm not going out with friends on the weekends, drinking and, or whatever people do on the weekends. So I, I tend to stay home anyway. And, and I live a pretty inexpensive lifestyle, but I, yeah, I have to, you have to always keep in mind. And, and so my activities would be to sit home on my computer and, and, uh, and watch YouTube videos of other people traveling or read trip reports or look at pictures or uh, listen to your show. And, and that would inspire me to, to keep at it because I knew someday that it would be me. Mm -hmm. What was your departure date? December 14th of uh, 2020. I'm sorry. <laughs> December 14th of 2020. Mm. And, and so how did that go? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, because of COVID, uh, and I'm working in the casino business and in Colorado, they shut down the casinos because those were considered non-essential, which of course they're not, they're, they're not essential. I agree with that. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it, that's kind of, a, to get off on a little side note there, I, some of my co-workers were really angry about that. And I, I thought <laughs> we work in a casino. Of course we're not essential. Yeah, but it, when, it, when it's you that gets hurt from it, that's when it that's when it bothers all of us, isn't it? I mean, it's well, it's well, it's the concept is okay. Yeah, yeah, shut things down. But all of a sudden, when it's when it's my pocket that goes empty, that hurts. Exactly, and so that's what it came down to. Is I was laid off for a total of about uh, it was eight months or something, and oh, it wow. got to the point where I was starting to have to dig into my trip savings to mm -hmm. live at home. And just decided that wasn't worth it to me. And I didn't think I was going to be causing any more problems related to COVID if I was living on my bike as opposed to living at home in my apartment. Uh, so I decided to set out a little bit earlier than I intended. And because it was winter, uh, my first goal was to go down to Mexico uh, right away. And uh, those first couple of days leaving Colorado in the middle of December were, were rough. Uh, I, I saw a low of 17 degrees Fahrenheit, which is what, minus five or minus six. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, was, it was a cold ride until I got to Phoenix. Did you get to Mexico? I did. So um, I went through Phoenix and then I went to San Diego and entered Mexico at Tecate, which is, I believe that's in Baja. And, uh, and then I went down the Baja Peninsula all the way, well, all the way down to the bottom to La Paz and what's, uh, uh, what's the other city down there? Cabo. Now that's really as far as you could go, I think at that point, wasn't it? I mean, yep. everything else was shutting down. Uh, and that was a big thing. Um, Baja was, was pretty closed up. Uh, there was a lot of stuff I couldn't do because of COVID. Everything was closed. A lot of the towns uh, had curfews at, say, 6 or 7 p.m. So, I mean, there were a few times where I got into a town and there wasn't anything available for food or, you know, I, I just had to uh, you know, e either eat what I had with me or, or not eat anything at all. 
Wow, so thinking back to that time, because it was it was a very um, turbulent time and uncertain, because none of us knew that things were going to end or if the, when they were going to end. Didn't you feel a little lost at that point, thinking, "What am I doing?" I mean, it's a pandemic; the world is shutting down. Everything is changing in the world for everyone, and here you are living off your motorcycle in a foreign country. Yeah, for that reason, I didn't want to go beyond Mexico. I. I wasn't going to go any farther than Mexico because I, we've all heard those stories of people getting shut in their, their hostels in South America. And I didn't want to get into a situation where I couldn't get back to the U S. Um, but when I travel, I, I stay pretty solo. I camp a lot. Uh, when I was staying in hotels, I was frequently the only guest in the hotel. So I didn't have uh, a lot of interaction with local people. And that's a shame because I, I like that sort of uh, that part of travel is, is interacting with local people, but it just turned into a sightseeing trip. Uh, I, I enjoyed Baja. That's, it's quite scenic. You going through the, the desert and all the, the strange uh, plants that I'd never seen before, all the cactus and the, the, the Boojum trees. And uh, I forget the name of all the other ones, but uh, yeah, it was really, it was beautiful. And, and I was prepared to just turn around and go back to the U.S. at any point if, if it got really bad. Mm-hmm. You ended up going on the stall rat. What made that happen? That was something I wanted to do for quite a long time. Uh, when I first read about uh, the, the Cuban trips that, that they would do, uh, I knew I wanted to integrate that into my trip somehow, and it was going to be really hard with the schedule. Uh, and then at the very last minute, they scheduled a trip for 2021. Um, the The time changed a few times. Uh, first, it was going to be in May, I believe, and then it moved to January. And eventually it went to March. Uh, it it that was something that I, I, it was basically number one on my bucket list was to go to Cuba. That's Cuba has been a goal of mine since I was in my teens. Well, why, what, what, what's the fascination with Cuba? Uh, good question. I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I just remember always, I guess because of, you know, as an American, we, and we have the, the embargo against Cuba. So I think technically it's illegal for us to, to travel there as a tourist. Uh, I guess maybe it's that, fascination with what I can't have. Um, and I remember reading an article around that time, maybe when I was 18 or 19 years old, uh, where they had talked about all the old American cars in Cuba and how they keep them running. And they, you know, they put diesel engines in them and, you know, they've, they've just a hodgepodge of parts and they're fixing things. And, and, it just seemed so strange to me because I couldn't even imagine living in a world where you're still driving a car from the fifties and there aren't any parts available. So you just have to find whatever you can to, to make it work. And I was fascinated by that. I really wanted to, to see what that life was like. Yeah. And you got on the style, right? You said, you said they, they, the final uh, date, they, they changed to March. That was in 2021. 
March of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird time to be traveling. And it's, it's just amazing that you're having this adventure and going on the spell <laughs> route. There was other people too. Well, so many people are, are locked down. Like you said, I mean, the, the, your, your work is locked down. People are forced to stay in their homes in some cases. And maybe it wasn't quite that to that point. Uh, was it at that date? I can't remember now. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, depending on the part of the world, I guess you were in Mexico, especially the East coast where all the tourists are, it, it was pretty well open. When I got to Cancun and, and Playa del Carmen, I mean, people were going in bars. There was live music. Oh, really? um, yeah. Like was, an oasis was... <laughs> in a world of COVID. <laughs> so you, 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 you were mentioning the stall rat. So you, you, um, you got on the stall rat. Talk about that, the, the whole procedure. So we had to take a COVID test before we boarded. And so I took my test in, in uh, Cancun. It was a hundred US dollars. And um, the, the, uh, the Stalrata actually leaves from the island of uh, Isla Mujeres, which, so you cross a ferry over to this small island. It's, and we loaded the bikes almost immediately. And that was fun. Uh, you've probably seen videos or pictures of, of the bikes being loaded. And I've heard stories of people really freak out about their bike being lifted into the air, but the crew was so quick and efficient. In fact, I tried to get my camera out so I could get pictures of my own bike being loaded. And by the time I got my camera out, it was already done. <laughs> and it was super efficient. So they loaded, there were five of us with motorcycles and they had all five bikes loaded and strapped down and covered with tarps within 10 or 15 minutes. Oh, and, uh, and then we were scheduled to leave the next day. We had, uh, Mexican immigration came on board to process us out of the country. Um, most of that was taken care of by the crew of the Stalrata, so we didn't really have to do anything. And we set off, I don't remember the exact date, but we set off, it was late in the evening. It was just before sunset, which is just gorgeous. We're sailing you know, out into the Caribbean Ocean. The water is bright blue. The sun's going down. It, it was just amazing. Now you're you're loaded up with five people headed for Cuba during COVID. What did you expect you're going to get there? I mean, was there not the fear of you know you arrive and there's no place to go, nothing to see? <clears throat> I didn't have that fear going there. I didn't really know what to expect. Uh, I didn't know what kind of conditions or what restrictions they had in Cuba. I knew we were going to have to do some. COVID tests when we got there and they had told us that there would be a few days of quarantine. Uh, but as far as on the ground stuff, I really didn't know. I had talked to a couple of people who had been to Cuba in the past, but of course they weren't there during COVID. So they told me what their experience was like. And I didn't know what would be different when I got there, but I didn't have any, any sense of fear or, or I just thought, well, when we get there, we'll figure it out. I, I just didn't think it would be difficult. Uh, I, you know, they were allowing tourists. They, up until that point, they weren't allowing tourists into the country. And just before that, they had opened the country up to foreign tourists. So my thought was, well, they must be opening up, you know, things will be available. And that was kind of the thought process I had. But to be honest, I, I didn't give it a whole lot of concern because I just figured it would be taken care of when we got there. We'd figure it out. What was it like? It was hard. 
Um, I'm really surprised they were allowing foreign tourists into the country because I don't know what they expected us to do because nothing was open. It was, it was very hard. Um, I had trouble finding food and water frequently and just because all the stores are shut. So yeah, boy, this, it's, it's a tough question to answer because I don't know how Cuba is like normally. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say stores, Cuba doesn't have stores like you or I might think about. Um, and the few stores that they do have, you go inside and it's just empty shelves. So, and then when I was there, half of those were closed. And, and I, I would ask people, where can I buy water? Where can I buy water? Where can I get food? And nobody knew. And, and it, it left me with this thought of, how do regular Cubans survive? Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't you ask them, where do you get your food? Uh, well, my Spanish is pretty limited. So I, I wouldn't frequently have conversations with people. I would, I would try to ask them, where can I, where can I get these things? Where can I get something to eat or where can I get food? And sometimes they would, you know, they would point in a direction and tell me, Oh, you can go down there and there's a guy that's selling some stuff or or sometimes they would tell me they don't know. And I just had to go with that and, and just keep going. So and you're on your bike, obviously, at this point. You've unloaded it from the cell route. Yeah. You, and you're, was, you're, you're exploring. Are you staying to the tourist areas or, or are you just heading off? Well, I made a big uh, counterclockwise loop of the island. So I did go through some tourist areas. There's only a handful of what I would consider... Uh, touristy areas. Of course, you have Havana, which I really didn't spend much time in the in the capital city. Um, you've got the resort area of Veradero, and I know a lot of Canadians, they like to go down to Veradero, but Veradero was completely closed down. Uh, they had armed armed guards, maybe they weren't armed, but they had um, security in front of all the hotels and the gates were closed and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, there's a few other towns like Viñales, which is popular for tourism. Uh, and I went to those places. There's a few eco parks, but those were all closed. Uh, so, but I also enjoy just traveling through the country and meeting regular local people. And so I did a combination of a little bit of everything. But when you talk about tourist areas, those were all shut down. There was nothing, there was nothing open. There were no museums. There were no parks. There were no hotels. It, it just, it was so hard to, to find anything that was operating. And are the locals interested in you being there? Or do they seem enthusiastic or, or are they, and are they all wearing masks or they want us to keep their distance or what did you experience with that? Right. So the mask policy in Cuba at that time was you had to wear a mask everywhere all the time. And just by nature, it makes interaction a lot harder. Yeah, And so I did not have near the interaction I had with people as I might normally enjoy. Um, but what I found were that the, the people were incredibly friendly and accommodating and curious. Uh, the, the big curiosity I had, of course, was the motorcycle. And I ride a CB500X. And to Cubans, that is an enormous bike. I had several people comment to me that it's as big as a car. Uh, you know, when they would, they would see the 500 on the side of the bike and they would just, they couldn't believe that someone would make a motorcycle that large. 
Uh, and that was always fun. Or why you would need it to ride around. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I found the, the people to be wonderful, despite the fact that, yeah, everybody's trying to keep their social distance and everybody is wearing a mask. And, and despite that, it, it, you know, I still had some, some wonderful interactions and, and the people were so friendly and it's just amazing because you, you'd see people who, who they just don't have things and, and yet they're willing to share whatever they have with you. Did it seem like a safe place to travel? Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's odd because you even mentioned that they have the hotels closed and they have guards there at the hotel. Well, that's gotta be guarding from people of Cuba going in and maybe, I don't know, looting or something like that. Yeah. I, I'm not really sure, but I, I, one of the things that I perceived while I was there and I encountered this several times is a lot of the places, even if they were closed, they were staffed. And hmm. I think that was to kind of help the economy uh, stay open. So they were still sending people to work, presumably, earning a wage rather than just shutting everything down and sending everybody home. Um, people were, some people were still going to work and I'm only guessing at that from what I, what I observed. I, I don't know that for sure, but that was the impression that I got that a lot of places were still, the workers were still going into their jobs, even if there weren't, visitors or, you know, they, they weren't selling anything or they weren't open. Um, they were still going to their jobs and, and earning money. So to, to help keep the economy going. Mm. And, and, and in one random little town, I had this guy pull up next to me on his little scooter and he was trying to talk to me. We're, you know, we're going down the street at 15 kilometers an hour or something. I couldn't understand him. So I pulled over to see what he wanted and he just wanted to see my bike. And uh, he was just like, oh, it's so beautiful. And wow, it's big. And he was looking at the luggage and looking at the lights and just amazing. And he told me someday I want to I take a, a trip across Cuba. On, on, and he pointed at his, his scooter. And I said, oh, man, you should. It's, it's, it's a beautiful country. I love it. It's, it's great here. And uh, then we talked for a few more minutes. And then he went to leave. And I stopped him. And I said, well, wait a minute. Do you want to take my bike for a spin? Oh man, really? And so he did, he took it down the street and expert rider. I mean, he was really it immediately just looked comfortable on it and uh, took it down the street, came back, parked and we exchanged contact information. And uh, about a month ago, I found out that he made it to uh, Miami. No way. He went. He, yeah. So he's put, uh, he's put some videos on YouTube of them. Uh, they somehow got to Nicaragua. I, I don't quite know how that worked. Um, but then they made their way up through Central America and Mexico. And I believe they crossed into the U.S. illegally. I, I, I'm not sure about that, but I, I assume that's how it was. And uh, they had some sort of extended family in, in, uh, in Miami. And he's putting out videos of his life here in, in the U.S. Um, wow. And is, you think that's inspired by you? I mean, obviously he had the seed there, but getting on your bike. Wow. I hadn't thought about that. I, I have to imagine his goal and dream was to get to the U S most of his life. Um, I would like to think that maybe his brief interaction with me somehow affected that, but I'm guessing those wheels were turning already. I'm, yeah. I'm, 
I'm guessing he had that plan in motion for quite some time. Because uh, it's it's not easy. It's not easy for them to get out of the country and and get here. Yeah, yeah, that's a and, whole different adventure altogether. Yeah. And you certainly met some people there. In fact, you, you met one family that sort of took you in for a day. Can, can you talk about that? Can you tell the story? Yeah, absolutely. So what happened there? I mean, so how do you come across these people and how does the, how does the food thing come up? Sometimes comfort is mistaken for luxury, but when it comes to riding a motorcycle, comfort means less fatigue and less fatigue means not only a more enjoyable ride, but it also means a safer ride because we all understand that fatigue draws us down, slows our reactions, clouds our good judgment. Comfort is really important for us riders. So when I think of the Atlas throttle lock, I not only think of the comfort I get from it, those two solid buttons with positive feedback, the ability to adjust the throttle up and down without disengaging it, the, the fact that it gives my wrist and hand a rest from gripping the throttle. Don't you notice on your on your left hand how your left hand is always relaxed, but your right hand is clenched to hold that throttle? That's just part of riding. But when the road opens up, clenching your hand is kind of redundant. That's why the Atlas Throttle Lock is there. It takes that, that clench away from you, gives you time to relax, makes your ride more comfortable, and lessens fatigue on you. And the Atlas works so well. I mean, it's so refined in design that you tend to use it without thinking about it. You know, you just sort of expect it to be there for you. It becomes that standard part of your equipment, equipment that you can count on, I always like to say. That's the hallmark of a great product. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. If you can't see it, then it's dangerous. On the road, I mean. The better your field of vision, the farther you can see down the road, then the longer you have to react. There's no better way to illuminate the road than with quality LED lights. Cyclops Adventure Sports is owned and operated by riders just like you and I, and they specialize in all kinds of lighting for motorcycles. LED replacement headlights, auxiliary lights, CAN bus plug-and-play systems for a bunch of bikes, very special yet affordable lighting made for us riders. They have the Evolution Safety Turn Signal Inserts, which I have on my bike, and I love these things. They turn your front turn signals into these super bright white driving lights, which double, of course, as your, your turn signals as well. And then the back, your signals turn into super bright tail lights, and then stunningly bright brake lights. I mean, these things are so bright, they make my factory LED light look dim. And, and it was super bright when I bought the bike. Everyone commented on it, but these are even brighter than that. So the combination of the three is just it's arresting for the vehicle behind. You can see it illuminate signs in, in your mirror, like way, way down the road. It's really, really good. And that is safety because, of course, Cyclops' slogan is see and be seen. And you certainly do see and you certainly are seen with this stuff. Anyway, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Cyclopsadventuresports.com. When you see a bunch of adventure motorcycles stood in a parking lot, you'll see all kinds of tires, panniers, bags, straps, things like that, all customized to meet the rider's wants and needs and looks, etc. But when you spot a set of IMS foot pegs on a bike, then you know that's a serious rider. Because serious riders know the difference in performance foot pegs will make, and they understand the value in investing in those and how much it will improve their riding skills. When IMS builds these pegs, 
They use everything they've learned from way back in 1976 when IMS started right up till now. They use everything they've learned off the racetrack because over all that time, just about every podium finisher in off-road racing has had an IMS product on it. They take all that data and then they build these Adventure Bike Series foot pegs. And every detail, right down to the angle of the back of the casting, which is designed to shed mud and, and reduce clogging, they call it watershed design, or the two rows of staggered teeth meant to increase grip and not rip up your sole. I mean, all of these things make the difference. And of course, the material they use to make them, 17-4 cast certified stainless steel, they test them so extensively and they are so confident in these products that they cover them with a lifetime warranty. Lifetime. Now, even one step further, they're made in the USA where quality control can be monitored at the highest level. Seriously, if you don't have them, you should have. IMSproducts.com is the website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. So what happened there? I mean, so how do you come across these people and how does the, how does the food thing come up? So uh, I was traveling on a highway in Cuba and I stopped at a scenic overlook and there was a map uh, posted. And paralleling the road I was on, they had a little dotted line that said four by four. And I said, well, I'm taking that. So I went down that road and I came across where it was completely washed out. So I couldn't get through. And uh, one of the folks who lived nearby, he, he came down on his horse and he actually offered to help me get my bike through the through where the, the road had washed out. And I declined that because it just wasn't worth it. Uh, and he said, well, hey, why don't you come up to the house and I'll make you some coffee and maybe some dinner? I said, oh, well, sure, I'll do that. So I went up and he introduced me to his wife and I think his brother-in-law or there was another, there was another young man there that I didn't really interact with much. But um, so he showed me he had pigs and he said, you know, I, I'll make dinner. And he picked out a piglet and slaughtered it right there. And it took four or five hours to cook a pig. And so in the meantime, he's showing me around the area. So we ate dinner and and we enjoyed some rum and we listened to music and we shared stories as much as we could with my limited Spanish. And I really thought we had a genuine connection, a friendship. And then I stayed the night. I set up my tent right in their yard and I got up in the morning and he, and he had a couple of horses and we went for a horseback ride, which that was wow. amazing. And then he, he took my bike for, I gave, let him ride my bike. <laughs> and <laughs> Was he and, a rider? Uh, uh, he, had, he told me he had ridden a motorcycle before. Uh, mm. I mean, they're all riding the scooters and things like that. So yeah. uh, he seemed to know, but he certainly wasn't used to the, the size and weight and the power. Uh, he actually fell. The first, his first attempt, the bike went down. Uh, we got him back up and then he took it down the road and back. And uh, he said, okay, okay, no more of that. <laughs> and... Around that time, I, you know, I thought, well, I better head out. I've been here for almost, uh, you know, 24 hours. I'm going to, there's so much more of Cuba I want to see. So I, I bid them farewell. But that whole morning I struggled with whether I should offer them some money before I leave. And what I decided was I, I did not. And because to me, it felt like that would cheapen the experience that I would be paying for this experience like a tourist when I really felt like we were friends. And, and then later I realized that that, that was pretty selfish. Um, it would have cheapened it for me. And I, I don't know what his response would have been, but you know, uh, I probably have a thousand times his earning power 
And I, I don't like that inequality, but I could have given them 50 or a hundred bucks. And it would have had almost no effect on my life and, and would have been an enormous sum to him. And, uh, like I said, I, I, it still haunts me today, whether I should have done that or not. Yeah, I was going to ask you when you said it would cheapen it, I was going to say cheapen it for you or cheapen it for him or, or for both of you. It is a tough line, isn't it? Because like, let's say you had offered him the money and he thought you were friends. And in particular, when there's a language barrier, I don't, obviously I don't know how good your Spanish is to explain concepts, but it may be taken, you know, as you saw it the whole time as you were having a little uh, adventure that you're paying for. And he thought he was making a friend. So yeah, I mean, it could be very offensive. On the That's, other hand, maybe he thought, you know, well, why wouldn't this rich guy just say, hey, I'll, I'll give you a few bucks for the pig. It, it's yeah. very difficult. And, and I mentioned, like, we did discuss this on Raw before, and there's certainly different ideas on, on how to do it. One of the ways is to, to leave a gift, you know, to find something they need. But you have to be careful with that as well, because we heard stories of, um, for instance, if you, they had worn, I don't know, say worn cups and you go and buy them cups, then they can find that very offensive. Like, oh, you thought my cups aren't good enough. You know, so and not that anyone just because they don't have the same money that we do is unsophisticated as we are not compared to someone who is rich to us. It's a difficult thing. And I, I think it's almost a case by case basis. But but you're saying it's haunting you. What would you do if you could go back and do it again? I I believe I would have. Put a few bucks together and just asked him if he wanted it or held it out to him. And it would have been up to him to decline it or, or accept it. Mm. And, and at least then I would have known I, I would have tried. Um, and, but you're right. Uh, he could have interpreted that as, you know, Hey, I was doing this out of my, the generosity of my heart. And now you're offering me money. Um, well, sometimes um, it's how it's offered too. I mean, for instance, you know, we used to do wilderness tours and, and when I'm guiding a trip and I'll, I'll take this one, for instance, because I remember this one guy, he was an older guy, uh, probably, probably in his eighties and he's on a kayaking trip and he has trouble getting in and out of the kayak, but he's also very independent. He's very proud of the fact that he's older and that he's doing these things on his own. I know if I offer him help and say, oh, geez, let me get, let me help you get out of there. You're having trouble. He's going to be very offended. And this guy would have been rude and, and sort of, you know, shove me off and say, forget it. You know, I don't want your help. So it was how I approached him. And what I would do is I would say, oh man, I, I find it so hard after we've been paddling as I'm walking over to, to grab his hand, to give him a, a pull up. I say, I always find it, you know, that I get stiff and you do, you get stiff in there and say, well, you know, I, and I use that as an excuse sort of. As okay. I'm helping out of the boat, I didn't even ask him, do you need a hand? It was more of a mutual complaining, you know, I'm commiserating yeah. the, the uncomfortable seat and it was okay with him. He was good with it, with that. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so in that same situation, so in other words, like if you were to say, Hey, you know, I, I I'd like to pay for that pig. I mean, you weren't planning on slaughtering that pig. Let, let me, let me pick up the pig. I don't That's, know, you know? Yeah. Something uh, like I, that. I did give them some stuff. I ha I had some ratchet straps that I had used to cross the ferry from Baja, mm -hmm. and I'd been and they're heavy, uh, and I'd been carrying them, you know, all across Mexico into Cuba, and and I thought, well, a guy like him, you know, he lives out in the middle of the wilderness, uh, he could probably use some ratchet straps, um, and so I gave him those, uh, <laughs> you know, and I was really searching for something I could share with them, and and I. I just, I don't carry stuff. So it's so hard for me to, 
offer a gift when it happens almost spontaneously like that. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't go get them some, not that I could buy anything in Cuba anyway. Yeah. Uh, well, and there's something about cash that has a different tone than giving something like if you had, I don't know if they're smokers, you had cigarettes or, or, or candy or something like that, or you had sugar and they didn't have a lot of sugar or something like that. That's, that's almost like an easier thing to share than cash. There's something about cash that has a, a certain tone, at least in my mind or a certain. Oh, absolutely. Feeling, and, and that right? was a big part of my hesitation is, is cash is so abrupt. It suddenly makes this a business transaction. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly it. Whereas if I could have offered them a, a lovely gift that I was carrying, but of course I, I don't have stuff like that. I don't mm -hmm. have other than, you know, I'm carrying ratchet straps, you know? Uh, so uh, I did what I could. Uh, I, I don't know if I did the right thing. And, and I, I don't know if what I would do differently if I had an opportunity. Um, that said, if I had an opportunity to go back to Cuba, I absolutely would. And I would go see him mm -hmm. and it might be different at that point. So and this is something you're going to have to deal with. You're going to have to figure out as you go, because no doubt there's going to be more of these as you travel into any, any spot that's impoverished. And you're going to have to decide either globally, come up with some sort of thing and say, this is how I'm going to handle this, or come up with some method for dealing with it on a case-by-case -case basis, uh, assessing, you know, what the situation is and what might be appropriate. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not in the habit of giving out money to anybody. Uh, not, you know, like panhandlers on the street and whatnot. I, I, whether it's, in the U S or, or anywhere else. I, that's not something I normally do. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I, you know, every once in a while, if I'll, I'll, I'll be a little kid, I don't know. It's, it's so tough because being on a bike and having very limited material things with me, money is kind of the only thing I can offer. Um, and yet you need it too. I mean, I mean, you know, yeah. like you, yes, you're doing a, you're on a vacation, you know, you're doing something that many people would never be able to afford to do. But if you aren't careful with that money, that, that uh, three years worth of money or whatever it is that, you, that is going to work out for you is going to quickly dwindle to a very short vacation if you're handing it out to everybody. And what, what, what effect will you really have other than the momentary satisfaction, maybe for a couple of days, w what are you going to change? Like, you know, if you, if you, for instance, for that, that person that you got, did you met and you, you had the, the pig with, and you had a nice meal and, and, and they took care of you, drank some and how much will you change your life? What is $50 going to do for them? It, exactly. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, long-term, it's not going to change the way they live. No. It's not going to change. It's not going to make their life so much better in the moment. It's a nice perk, but is it going to change much? Probably not. And, yeah. and yeah, that's the conundrum mm -hmm. is, is what do I do? What does it matter? Uh, you know, a situation like that is quite a bit different than if I encounter somebody on the street and I, I, I give them uh, you know, five or 10 pesos here in Mexico, which is not even a dollar. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have with, with those, that family in Cuba, um, I would, I would, the, the number I had in my head was 50 or a hundred dollars. I mean, I was going to give them something significant mm -hmm. and it was whether I was going to or not, it wasn't going to be, here's $2 or here's $5. It was, I was going to give them a, a, a significant amount or I wasn't. And, and it's still a question. And 
you know, if I see somebody on the street and I give them 25 or 50 cents, that's not going to affect my life even over the long term. So, um, but it's those, it's those deeper connections that you have that I struggle with. And, and I don't, I don't know that there's a good answer. I, I did have an experience in Cuba where I did give somebody some cash. Uh, I went to a, uh, um, a tourist play. It, it, it's, it's, I think it's the highest waterfall in Cuba. And I went out there to see it. And it, as it turns out, you have to pay entry and they have a little, uh, museum and things like that. And of course, all of that's closed. And I get there and it was staffed and this guy came out and despite that they were closed, he offered me to come inside. I soon realized that he was very drunk as was his colleague. <laughs> and then they shared their rum with me. So I ended up spending the night. We had a great time together. He cooked me dinner. Um, he cooked me breakfast in the morning. Um, and I gave them each $10 when I left because I think when I arrived, it was expected that it was a business transaction. I was there to experience a, a, a tourist site and their tour guides. And they, even though that they were closed, they offered to do that for me. And so I, I got up in the morning and, and uh, I gave them each $10 and they seemed pretty happy with that. And, and I went on with my life. And again, I'm not sure that that was the right thing to do. Uh, having done it, it seemed like the right thing to do. Uh, but that was a different situation because I didn't feel like I made close friends with them. It, it, it started out as a business transaction. And, and so that's how I, I felt like I could treat it. When you gave them the $10, what did they just, they just took it and said, thank you. Yep. Yep. Uh, it was pretty just, you know, I folded up a $10 bill and I said, thank you very much. And, and they said, well, thank you. And uh, that was the end of it. Yeah. I also gave them, I was carrying M&Ms with me um, and I gave them each a package of M&Ms and uh, the younger guy who I interacted with more than the other, um, he put it in his pocket and I said, well, no, go ahead. You, you know, you can eat them. And he said, well, I've got kids at home. I'm going to give it to them. Oh, wow. And how, how did you get back? Did, did the Stalrati wait there for you? They, the, the Stalrata came back to, to meet us in Cienfuegos, which is where they dropped us off. But in the, in the three weeks we were in Cuba, uh, they actually had some other paying passengers on board that were there just to, you know, see the Caribbean ocean. And so I think they did some island hopping and, and, you know, snorkeling and went to the beaches and things like that. I, I'm not really sure where they went, but they, they did not stay and wait for us. They, they went out and did their own thing and then came back when it was ready uh, time for us to leave. And then you load back up again and you head back where? Uh, back to Isla Mujeres and exactly where we left from. So it was just a out and back trip. So when you get back to, to where you started, you've seen Cuba, what's next? At that point, um, I went back up to the U S uh, because I had, I had previously made plans with friends in the U S and I wanted to go see some family. So I went back up to the U S for a few months and, uh, wandered around. And then I really wanted to go up to Alaska and Northern Canada. But at that point in summer of uh, 2021, the Canadian border was still closed. And, uh, so that wasn't possible. 
and then they opened it. And I remember specifically, I think it was August 9th. Uh, and it took me a couple of weeks to kind of get things prepared. But I, I went up to Canada then in late August of 2021. And uh, of course, that's pretty late in the season. So I decided yeah. at that point that I wasn't going to make it to Alaska. Uh, but I did go as far north as uh, Do- uh, Watson Lake in Yukon. And that was that was a great ride. I, I absolutely love that. But I was already starting to see signs that were saying, you know, snow tires required starting <laughs> October 1st and and uh, met a couple of other travelers who told me that they had already run into snow. And uh, so I turned around and, and headed back south, back to the U.S. And all this time, this is eating into your round the world trip. Does that stress you out? Yeah. Uh, I mean, even, even now. So at this point, while we're talking, I'm almost two years into my trip and I haven't left North America (laughs) and, and I, I try not to worry about money, but I know that every day that I'm traveling, uh, I'm using part of my budget and which means maybe in a couple of years, I'm not going to be able to go to Europe or I'm not going to be able to go to Asia or Australia or, you know, these other places that I might want to visit. So Mm. yeah, it's really, really on my mind that, uh, I'm, especially when you travel in, uh, you know, no offense, Jim, but Canada is expensive. And I spent a a month up there and I mean, I don't know how much I was spending, but it's, it's not a cheap country to travel in. Mm Mm-hmm. But why are you only to Mexico now? Let me, if you don't mind me asking, I know it sounds so simplistic for somebody from the outside to just say, so what's taking you so long? Well, you know why you just in Mexico, but, but things have kind of opened up. We've talked to a lot of people on, that we've had on the show here who've been out and, you know, they're traveling all over the place. Why haven't you got any further? Well, there's two parts to that. For one, I travel really slowly. Uh, and I have to continuously explain that to people. Uh, sometimes people are like, why wow, you've only made it this far. Um, yeah, a hundred miles a day for me is, that's probably pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't travel every day, but overall average is probably about a hundred miles. Um, but also, uh, I, I stopped for the winter of 2021 going into 2022 because I didn't really know where to go. Winter's coming. It's going to get cold. I'm on my motorcycle. I need to figure out what I'm going to do. At that point in time, COVID's still a big thing at the end of 2021. Still a lot of borders closed. I wasn't sure about Central America. And uh, a couple of friends convinced me to stop and get a job, which at at first just seemed (laughs) ridiculous to me that in the middle of my trip, I would stop and get a job. But uh, I ended up finding work in Phoenix. And uh, that really worked out well because, you know, you mentioned going through my budget. Well, I spent six months putting all that money back and, and, uh, I made some changes to my gear because I'd realized some of the things that I, I planned didn't work out how I thought they would, or some of the gear I bought just didn't really work how I thought or, and so I, I was able to stop and reevaluate everything and, and put some money away and, and spend the winter in Phoenix, which is not a bad thing. And then what's the plan after that? So I, I still wanted to go to Alaska, 
And while I was in Phoenix, I made the decision that in the springtime I would go to Alaska. And, but I decided to leave the bike in Phoenix and I took that uh, previously mentioned 16 year old car up to Alaska. And uh, that was my Alaska trip. It was, uh, I, I know this is a adventure rider radio, but that was an adventure in, in my car up to Alaska. Right. Then you got back on the bike after that? Yes. So I returned to Phoenix in, uh, when was it? I think August or September, I got back to Phoenix and uh, spent a few weeks getting all my stuff back together to get my motorcycle trip back on track. And I left Phoenix. Uh, I'm not very good at dates, but I left Phoenix a couple of weeks ago and uh, headed south. And, and now I'm in it for real because everything I own is with me now, except for, I mean, a very small handful of important documents and things like that, that I have stored at a friend's house. Um, so that was a big step for me. I, I left Phoenix and I'm down here in Mexico and I'm just going to keep going South. Did you just sell off that stuff? Was it, was that when you were in Phoenix that you sold off all your, your personal stuff or, what, or did you do that before? I, most of my stuff was sold in Colorado before I set out in 2020. Nice. Uh, but I held on to a handful of things, my car being an example um, I, you know, still had a few belongings. And so when I, when I got back to Phoenix this past year, this past, uh, summer, that's when I, I just finished selling off everything or giving it to friends and, and, uh, donating it, that sort of stuff. I gather you're not too materialistic because I, I think I, I saw you said that you you weren't really attached to the stuff you were selling. What wasn't that, wasn't that difficult for you to do? I think. No, not at all. Yeah. No, very, very few things are, are so important to me that I don't want to get rid of them. Right. So what's the plan from here? What, like, what is your route roughly? I'm going to keep going South from here, uh, in Mexico through Central America. Uh, I want to cross over from Panama into Colombia. Uh, I'm not sure how I'm going to do that. Uh, probably fly. Uh, I know that the Stalrad isn't an option anymore. Uh, I think there's some other boats and, you know, container ships and stuff. But from what I read about that stuff, uh, flying is just the cheapest and the, and the easiest. And once I get to South America, I don't have anything specific planned. I just want to spend maybe, you know, eight months or a year in, in South America. Uh, I get asked a lot if I'm going to Ushuaia. I don't have plans to do that. Um, that's interesting. So, I'll just, so, yeah, so, I, so your plan is to just go and explore, not so much destination driven. Yes. Uh, I've heard stories about the, the riding in Colombia that it's just, it's the best riding in the world. And I'm really looking forward to spending some time in Colombia. And I want to see Ecuador and Peru. Um, I would like to go to Machu Picchu if I can. Uh, you know, I want to go to Argentina and, 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 uh, some of the other countries down there, Uruguay, and, and maybe even into Brazil. Uh, but getting to the very end of, of South America, just for whatever reason, doesn't appeal to me. Uh, you know, I hear these stories of people riding for three or four days in intense winds and there's nothing down there, but a sign. So that's not something to me that is too important. I, I like to, experience the culture and, and I really like trying local foods and meeting local people. And I think I can best do that by, by staying kind of in the heart of South America. 
And when that's done, is is the thought to, I mean, obviously money depending, but to skip over to South Africa or into Europe? One of those two, yes. So I actually have a friend who's traveling in, in Africa right now. Originally, you know, pre-COVID, our plan was to join up in Africa. Uh, now things are a little different. He's well ahead of me. But he's in Africa right now, so I, I might end up meeting up with him. Or if that doesn't work out, maybe I'll ship to somewhere in Europe. Uh, probably make that decision when when the time comes. Uh, I don't have any specific plans other than, yeah, I want to continue on from South America. And and I'd like to see Africa. I'd like to go to Europe uh, and and just go as, as far and as long as I can. You, you've got a money limit here that's going to limit your your time on the road. Do you have a, a like a dollar figure that you you get to when you're going to have to say call it quits, or do you sort of have a, a destination in mind that you figure I'll be able to get to there and then I'm going to have to go home? Uh, it's it's financial. So I told you my my overall budget is is around sixty thousand, and I have a ten thousand uh, dollar buffer. So when I get to ten thousand dollars left. That's kind of that's going to tell me that, okay, I have to get back to the U.S. and I guess get a job and, you know, that sort of thing. Um, I will say on that note, when I spent the winter in Phoenix working for six months, that was not too bad. That really worked out well. So I could see myself maybe when I get through South America, if I can find some place that's a, a secure and legal place to leave my bike for a, a few months, I can see coming back to the U.S. and working again and and uh, putting away another year or two of, of trip savings and maybe making it kind of a, a continuous, you know, travel for a couple of years, work for a few months, travel for a year. Right. That makes sense because I mean, a lot of travelers have done that, especially on, on long-term travel, not necessarily returning to their own country, but although that's a great idea because you know what you're making there, but even just working locally in, in whatever country you're in. Oh, absolutely. And I was in the process at one point of trying to get, uh, I have some German ancestry and I, I thought I might be able to get a, a German passport. Uh, I've kind of let that go on the wayside now, but for a little while I thought maybe I could get a German passport and I could get a, a, a job in Europe. Uh, where I could potentially make decent money. Yeah, yeah, and then and then extend the trip further. Yeah, exactly. But when it's when it's all done, though, when you do get to that point where it, if you're not doing the extended thing, but when it's all done, are you just going to return to normal life? Or have you thought that, <laughs> that far? Because the way you said it there, you said you know get a job and you know whatever else <laughs> or something uh, along those lines. I mean. I might be forced to do that, but it, it, it's, it's not part of my plan. Uh, but there's reality. I mean, when I run out of money, I, I still have to eat. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, I'll, I'll probably end up coming back here and, and uh, finding something, whether that be back in the casino industry or, or, you know, maybe I'll use my, my college education at some point. And, uh, but honestly, it's, I don't plan that far ahead. Uh, I kind of cross that bridge when I get to it. And it's not something I want to think about. No, I, I like that. And I guess probably with the way I should have asked that is, do you picture this as just a, a vacation where eventually you're going to go back and it'll be something you did sort of put it on the shelf and then go on with your life? Or is this potentially a life changer for you, sending you off in a different direction? Are you, are you sort of open to whatever happens? 
I would like to think this is my new life. Uh, but since I can't earn a living doing this, it's, it's not sustainable. So I will live this life as long as I can. And when the time comes, uh, I'll have to rejoin regular society and, and probably get a job in an apartment and, and, uh, and do that until, you know, as long as my health holds out and there's so many other variables, but I'd, I'd like to think that I could, uh, I could live a, a life of travel for the foreseeable future. Where would you feel more apprehension before you, when you were planning this trip and thinking about this huge amount of money that you've got to save and getting everything ready and heading off to these different countries or the thought of returning home at the end of it? Mm. Well, when you put it that way, um, the thought of re returning home, uh, mm -hmm. that's not something I've, I've actually thought about previously, but with your question, um, yeah, just the idea of, of someday that this trip will end and I'm going to run out of money and I'm going to have to go back to working and, and, uh, what we would call a normal life. Uh, that's kind of scary to me. It's interesting. Cause as I hear your story, I hear that, you know, it's all planning and, and projecting, but only to this point, it's like, there is <laughs> nothing beyond this from what oh. I gather, you know, like, like you're saying, I'll probably have to come back. Like I said, and, and there's nothing, you know, it, it just sounds like, that this is what you're planning for. As you said, you, you like the idea of this being your new life. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, I, I don't have very good long-term plans. Um, for example, the, the, the folks I'm staying with here in Durango, John and Dana, they've been fantastic, make me feel totally at home. They're American expats who, who moved down to Mexico because of the, the cheap, living and, and, uh, they like the life down here and Durango has a fantastic climate. Um, and I don't know what their financial position is, but I can see myself doing something like this because unfortunately I don't have very good, uh, future long-term plans. I, I don't have a retirement and I don't have a 401k and, um, I, I understand it's not very responsible, but it's just the lifestyle I've lived so far. And, uh, so I'm just, I'm trying to map out what's ahead of me, but only a year or two at a time. Uh, so I can't say what's going to happen in 10 or 12 or 15 years. Well, you may not have your retirement or your 401k, but you've got a motorcycle and, <laughs> and you've got your gear with you. And the thing is like, when you think about it in 75 years, is anyone going to care whether Jamie had a 401k <laughs> you know, like it, it almost doesn't matter. Oh, exactly. That's how I see it. Um, you know, the, the, the old cliche about the, the man on his deathbed, you know, he never regretted all the, all the places he went. He regretted that he, all the places he didn't go. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I just, 
I don't want to find myself in that position. And I doubt many people on their deathbed are saying, just, just hand me my, my bank book. I got to see this balance again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. it's, that's, that's going to be the least of your concerns when it's all over and we're all destined for that, that same thing. I mean, it's going to be over someday. So it's, it's how you want to spend your time in the meanwhile, and that, that little space that you've got. I always say it's like an hourglass when you can see the sand, the bottom where it's collecting, but you can't see how much is left in the top. It's a gamble. That's a good point. You know, when I was planning for this trip, I had someone comment to me that that this is something that that he had always wanted to do. He had his whole life. He wanted to take some long term motorcycle trip and everything. You know, he had kids and he had a job and all these other responsibilities that kept uh, taking the place of of him getting on his bike and going. And he said, finally, my my kids have grown up They're they, They've got families of their own. And now my my life is my own. And now he's got health problems. and. Mm he's not able to do it. And it's, it's so hard to hear that. And, you know, that could be me tomorrow. And I know my own parents, both of them are, they're going through their own health issues. They're getting older and, and, you know, they don't have, they're not as, as young as they used to be. And for myself, I don't want to get into a position where I, I don't want to wait until retirement because you know, that's when you might not be able to do stuff. And, and it's, it's tough to consider that. Well, I, especially because it is, you know, society has, has sort of programmed us all. Um, we've been programmed by everyone else to, to fall into line, you know, to think along those lines, you know, you, you work hard, you put your money away. And then when you retired, you do, I don't know what, you know, but it doesn't always work out because, and a lot of this stuff I question now myself, because, you know, I've seen people take that route of, I always thought you're supposed to work hard and you, you get ahead, but I've seen people who don't work at all and they've done really well. <laughs> and, it, and it shocks me sometimes thinking, well, wait a second, that is not how this is supposed to work, which makes me question everything else as well. The whole thing, like you're saying of, of, of waiting until you get old to do what you really want to do. Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, even if you look at it from a logical standpoint, because your health is deteriorating as you get older. So it makes sense to do what you want to do while you're capable of doing it, you know, within the confines of whatever you can afford to do, I guess, if it comes down to money. Absolutely. And I find myself fortunate enough that, um, because not everyone is fortunate enough to, to have the resources to do this. And visiting a place like Cuba really opens one's eyes to that, um, that, that those people there, most of them will never have anything like this opportunity. Mm -hmm. Like you're just lucky to have been born in the U S exactly. Yeah. Hey, I want to ask you about your gear. Cause you did, you did mention you're riding a, a CB 500 X. That's the Honda really nice bike, man. Everybody I talked to has had anything to do with this bike just goes on and on about it. Was that your original choice or how did you go through the bike process? I, uh, there were, there were three bikes that I, I strongly considered. I used to ride a Suzuki V-Strom and I saw no reason not to just get another one. Mm-hmm. Um, then I sort of, changed my mind and decided I wanted a, wanted a DR650. And I know you've, you've had quite a few of your guests are DR650 riders. They're yeah, yeah. wonderful bikes. And a few years back, I was at uh, one of the conventions, the traveler conventions in, in Arizona. And I saw a CB500X set up for long distance travel. And it really caught my attention because what my criteria were 
I wanted the smallest and lightest bike that had cheap operating costs and long-term reliability. And taken all together, I think the Honda really ticks all those boxes. Of course, it's not the lightest bike on the market and it's not the most powerful and it's, it's, but it does all of those things pretty well. And the, I, I, I got to talk about the fuel economy because it's phenomenal. Oh, really? And when I'm on the road, fuel is my biggest expense. So the, the, the lower I can get my fuel expenses while I'm on the road, the longer, uh, the longer I can, I can go on, on my limited budget. Now, is that something you discovered afterwards or did you compare fuel economy? I mean, the DR650 for sure, because it's carbureted, it's not going to be very good. But um, the V-Strom probably is pretty good. The V-Strom is pretty good. But the, uh, the CB500X is about like 20 or 30% better. Oh, wow. Uh, I mean, you're going to feel it because it doesn't have the power of, of the V-Strom or any other big bike. But that's okay with me. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with that. Uh, and... So it, it wasn't the main part of the bike that sold me, but it was a big consideration. And and when I saw what other people's experience was with the fuel economy, I thought, wow, that's that's really good and that's helpful. That'll that'll save a lot of money. So how much of the um, the the cool factor, the ego, gets caught up in your bike? Uh, I mean, you know, for for a lot of people, we like a bike that looks a certain way, etc. Was that part of your decision factor? Or are you just strictly going for fuel economy, reliability, like you said? Uh, very little, uh, oddly enough. So the bike itself, uh, I, that wasn't important to me. The the look or the the ego. Um, when I bought my luggage, I use hard cases and. I, I hated, I, I shopped in part by the way they looked on the bike. <laughs> and, uh, cause I, I, I really like that boxy, uh, rugged look. And, uh, well, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, it's, it's our bike. That's why we want to, I mean, I think all of us have a, a little of that in us. Even the people who say they don't, I, I think you do because there's a certain look you like. I know there is for me. I mean, I, I like a certain look. My mine is going to be different from somebody else's. Absolutely. Uh, and I also like to keep my bike, despite the fact that I do have accessories on it. I've got luggage, I've got a skid plate, I've got uh, crash bars, I've got hand guards. Um, I do like to keep the bike as stock as possible. I I don't, I keep every, the dash is clean. I don't have wires hanging out. Um, I haven't modified much about the bike because the way I figure is everything I do to that bike makes it less reliable. So I try to change as little as I can about it yet making it uh, fit my, my needs. Mm. That's a tough one for, for a lot of people to realize because the, the manufacturers put so much work into designing these things to be reliable because they don't want to deal with warranty uh, issues. They certainly don't want a bike that gets a, a reputation as being a piece of junk or have, you know, some sort of failure and wiring or whatever the case is. So there's a lot of work put into all that sort of stuff, routing wires, uh, all of the design from the factory. And it's tough to, to keep that in mind when you're and it, but it's very easy to understand because when you open stuff up and you start doing wiring, you can see the look of your wiring compared to the look of the factory oh, yeah. wiring. <laughs> There's no mistake about it. And that's usually where you run into trouble is, is all those accessories you put on. But, but I think I saw you had like 40 different changes that you did to the 40 different <laughs> things you added onto the bike or something like that. Oh, Oh, I know exactly. Yes. Uh, but those are all like bolt on stuff. Um, right. and, and, uh, 
you know, the one, one of the issues that I, I had, I, I reluctantly changed the suspension and sure enough, uh, last year while I was in Mexico, my rear shock blew out. Now the manufacturer took care of it. They, they, they did an excellent job. They sent me a new shock, no questions asked, but that's just one of those things where invariably when something breaks, it's an aftermarket part. And, and, you know, I, I try to do as little as I can. Of course I have to have luggage on there and, uh, I like to have navigation. So I put a, a mount on there for the GPS and I put heated grips on there because, uh, those come in handy quite a bit. Um, but I, I really touch things as little as I can, because I know, just like you say, those manufacturers, especially Honda, if I can plug them a little bit, I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of Honda and, the re- their reliability they they've earned that reputation for a reason and mm-hmm. i don't like to touch stuff because it's whatever i do is going to be the thing that breaks yeah well the suspension i mean that could have went you know that could have been a factory one as well that could have went i mean that's that's always possible it depends on the, on the load that you've got um and it can just be one of those flukes i mean you you know you don't know but that's the only problem you've had with your bike um Yes. As far as I know, I had a flat tire two days ago for the first time. Um, That's your first flat. Wow. Yeah. Are, are yeah, they tubeless I, on that? They are not tubeless. Uh, so I've, I've got the cast rims, but that doesn't bother me. Uh, I, I don't ride rough stuff if, if I can. Um, I'm mostly a pavement rider. I don't mind gravel roads, but I don't do the the off-road or the single track or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. I've had a couple of rougher than expected roads, but I just go slow. So I'm not riding aggressively. And uh, yeah, the flat tire really sh- surprised me. Um, and it was just a simple plug. And it's, that it was, like I said, it was two or three days ago and it's held up. So, uh, and I've already got plans to uh, replace the tires when I get to Guadalajara. And uh, so I'll be, I'll be set. And I've got a new chain and sprocket that I'll be installing at that point And I uh, should be good to go for a while after that. And I imagine with the 500, the, the even the, like the chain of sprocket, that, that's all less expensive than it would have been, for instance, even on your V-Strom. Exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, that's part. So, like I said, I don't ride aggressively. I'm riding a bike that doesn't have a lot of power. So the wear and tear on on your items such as brake pads, chain and sprocket, tires, uh, you know, all of those things last a little bit longer because you're not stressing them as much as you would on a, on a larger bike, which is my preference. Right. Now, are there any changes that you did to the bike, any add-ons that you put on that now you, if you were to go back and do it all over again, you'd say, no, I'm, I'm going to save that money for fuel, not bother with that. Uh, my skid plate has been a pain. Uh, it, the, the CB500X isn't a great bike. It doesn't have a lower subframe. So there's really no good mounting points for a skid plate. And I bought a, obviously an aftermarket skid plate and mounted it on there. And it, it, it constantly moves, it vibrates and I just prefer to take it off, but I, it's still, I know it's helping cause I hear rocks bang off it now and then. And yeah. so that's one thing that I, I'm, <laughs> it's one accessory that I really don't like, but I kind of feel is necessary. Uh, I had installed a chain oiler at first and I think for me, it just made it worse. And, and so I ended up removing that. What do you mean made it worse? Like spraying oil all over? Uh, it, it, my, my 
it didn't extend my chain life at all, at least from my perception. Oh, I see. And it, it, it would just, you know, gather grit and, and dust on the chain and, and I ended up having to clean it all off. And mm. I just decided it, it, that wasn't worth it to me. Um, I've had some issues, uh, getting a, a seat that I like. And I think I finally got that fixed when I was in Phoenix. I went to a upholstery shop there and, uh, he set me up right for a very reasonable cost. And, and so far I like it. Anything else though? There's, there's something, you know, that I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not trying to trick you. Don't worry. I, I was just curious if there's, if there's anything, I mean, uh, if everything you bolted on, you thought, yeah, I would, I would take it all again. I mean, you, you, like I said, you had 40 different things, which isn't a lot. I mean, you, that's you listing every little thing I know, but, um, I, I do have one thing that comes to mind. Um, I've got a pretty large top case on there and that's on purpose. Uh, I try not to keep it full. I like to have the large top case so that if I stop somewhere, I can remove my riding gear, roll it up and put it in my top case. So it's secure. Mm. Uh, but having that big top case, I've had a few problems with the, the top case rack and I've had to have it re-welded a couple of times. I think I've finally got that fixed through a friend of mine in Colorado uh, I got a shout out to Finn. He's, he's been a lot of help to me. So he welded you up a new rack or just re uh, reinforced he, it? He, he reinforced it and it's, it's a great job and it hasn't moved since. And, and I, I really trust it now. So, mm. uh, but that's one of those things. If I had to do it again, I'd probably get a smaller top case. So I'm not putting so much stress on that top case rack. Uh, I might even consider, uh, going without a top case and just using a duffel like a lot of people use. Uh, I really prefer hard cases, but in this uh, in this instance, the the top case has been a real sore point because there's there's not a there's not a, a factory subframe rear subframe. So any aftermarket top case rack, it's really hanging off the back of the bike, and it's it's not a good design for this application. And uh, with with Finn's help. We got it straight, but uh, if I had to start over, I'd probably just get a, a smaller top case or just decide to use a duffel. Yeah, I have a duffel that I like to use for that. And the nice thing about that is it's collapsible. But the nice thing with that case is, and I'm not much one for, for top cases, but I like the idea of it because there's something about being able to open up a box and have that space in there, like you're saying, to, to put stuff in. Uh, stuff doesn't get broken. Of course, it locks. I mean, there's a lot of advantages to it. I, I like it. Now, the problem is they're easy to fill, you know, yeah, well, <laughs> so that's, that's with I, everything, isn't it? I, I always have to keep myself in check to not fill it up. And, and I'm constantly watching my gear and thinking, what don't I need? What can I get rid of so I can create some more space in here? Mm -hmm. What about your personal gear? What have you got for that? So I carry camping gear. I've got a, a tent and sleeping bag and, and sleeping pad. And, uh, and I, I've got uh, clothes. I just carry basically two sets of clothes. Uh, so I have the, you know, the same gray shirt and a dark gray shirt. <laughs> um, I, uh, let's see, what else do I carry with me? <clears throat> clothes and camping gear. And then I've gone back and forth on carrying a stove. Uh, I, I started out carrying a stove to cook my own meals and it's just not something I use very much, but it comes in handy now and then. So I now have a smaller stove that actually burns wood, which is kind of fun because mm. then you don't have to carry fuel. Yeah, I like it's, that. It's uh, it's a little more. Uh, 
it's it's not as uh, um, set it and go. You have to sit by it and keep feeding it wood. But I've used it a few times and it works. And it, it's it's very light and it, it, it packs pretty small. And um, gosh, what other stuff do I have with me? Uh, of course, I have rain gear. And I'm trying to picture my top case because that's where all my stuff goes. And of course, like everybody today, I've got a, a fair amount of electronics. Um, I have uh, my my regular phone, which also doubles as, uh, well, it's all my communication stuff on there. I also carry a tablet, and that's my day-to-day computer. Uh, so if, if I want to look at a big overview of, of, uh, of the area, look at maps, you know, I can open up Google Maps on there, and it's it's big enough that you can get a good sense of, of where you are compared to where you're going or where you want to go. And right. As um, opposed to looking at your phone where it's like, you know, I always say looking at the world through a straw. Exactly. It's, it's, it's not as good as a big uh, paper map, but it's big enough. It's, it's pretty big. Um, I also use a, a smartphone for my navigation device. So I have another smartphone, uh, mounted on my handlebars or on the on the dash. Oh, I see. So as opposed to buying a, a, a proprietary GPS or some sort of GPS that you know that's designed for motorcycling, you're just using the phone. Exactly, uh, mm-hmm. but it's not my day to day phone. It's a separate phone, uh, right. so it's it's not even connected unless I want to connect it to Wi Fi or something. So all my maps are offline. I I used to be a pretty pretty heavy GPS user. You know, I've I've been through all the Garmin's and and whatnot. Uh, but when it came down to this trip, I, I experimented with uh, using the smartphone and different mapping apps, and uh, I found that I, I prefer that. It gives me, I think, a lot more flexibility, and it's not just mapping. I have apps. Uh, I know people have talked about iOverlander on here, on your show, and and so I use iOverlander on that. And and if you've used iOverlander, it's very easy. You find a spot, and you just click a button, and then it it opens your mapping app and and routes you straight there. So it's it's very uh, very straightforward. All right. Um, I have uh, my sunrise and sunset app on there, so I can just quick check see if how much daylight I have left because that's always a concern. I, I like to camp as as much as I can, and I do like to wild camp. So it's important to start looking for a place to camp well before sunrise, uh, excuse me, well before sunset. Otherwise, you know, you run into the issue of it's getting dark and you, know, you haven't found a place to stay yet. Mm-hmm. And any other gear? Oh, let's see what I got. Uh, well, other than just random, you know, bits and bobs, uh, I, I, keep it at the minimum. You know, uh, I, I've got my, I've got my shelter. I've got my clothes. I have my stove. If I need to, you know, I carry a little bit of emergency food with me in case something happens and, and some water, Mm -hmm. um, just take care of the basics. And, uh, I do carry a chair and table, which I've (laughs) I've had some people (laughs) laugh about that, but, uh, what chair uh, and table do you have? Is it one of the ultralight ones? The, uh, yes. I see. Right. What's it called again? Uh, so I've got the good question. It's it, Helinox. Uh, is that what it Helinox, is? Helinox. Yes. Helinox, right. so, so I've got the, I've got the Helinox chair one, uh, which was quite expensive. Yeah. They're super, uh, but I I've, like never, it. I've never owned one because they're just so expensive. <laughs> I keep looking at them. Uh, yeah, but I like it. Uh, I, it, it, it's a little awkward to pack. It doesn't pack up as efficiently as I think it could. 
Um, and my table that I have, it's just as small and light. And it's just a cheapie I got on Amazon from a company called Trekology. Uh, but I really like it. But the thing with the chair and table is if, if I were to lose those or they get broken or something, I can live without those. Uh, they're small and light enough that they don't take up too much space. So I don't, I don't worry about them. And they're just a, a little bit of luxury that I like to have with me. When I get to my camp, I can set my chair out and take my boots off. And mm-hmm. put, I've got, uh, I've just got some, some camp shoes that I wear. And uh, th- that's always nice to be able to do. And cause before, you know, if, if you wild camp a lot, you get used to sitting on rocks or you get yeah, used to sitting stumps. on logs or. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. And I know the chair is nice. Like I've taken stools before and, uh, and use it like a three-legged stool, that sort of thing. Uh, and that's nice. I mean, it's nice to have something, but, but everybody brags with his Helinox chairs, Helinox chairs rather with um, the ability to sort of lay back and, and be very, very comfortable. So it's tempting. They're not every, you, you ought to try one. Not everybody likes them. I mean, they are compact chairs. They sit low and, and uh, I've had a few people sit in it that, that don't like it, but I've also had a few people sit in it and decide that they want one as well. So <laughs> yeah, that's what I've heard. Too. <laughs> the the one thing I've heard with the chairs is because those Helinox chairs are so desirable that you want to be careful leaving it at your, ca- like, especially if you're camping at a campground and walking away because some people have lost their, their chairs that way <laughs> or leave it outside never- at night. I've never lost mine, but I've gotten up in the morning and some of my campmates are sitting in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'll happen for sure. <laughs> well, Jamie, it sounds like you're on the, the trip of a lifetime and I'm, I'm, I'm somewhat envious of you, I have to say. And uh, thank you very much for, for coming on and talking about it. And I'm sure we're going to talk again because you, you've got a long way to go still. I do. And I, I, I would love to be back. Uh, I, like I said, I've, I've enjoyed your show for years. I, it's playing in my helmet when I'm riding down the road here in Mexico all the oh, time. And nice. uh, it's, it's very inspiring as it was a big part of my planning and, and preparation for this trip is, is listening to your guests and that their experiences and, and uh, you, you've got your writer skills series have been helpful. I've, I've really enjoyed those things and they've helped me with my own planning. Oh, thank you, Jamie. It's great to, uh, to know that we've been a, a small part at least in, in what you're doing right now. <laughs> Well, thanks, Jim. It's, it's been good talking to you. I was speaking with Jamie Zelansny en route. He was in Mexico at the time on his round-the-world trip by motorcycle. Now, we've got the links if you're interested in following Jamie's route, seeing what he's done. He's quite active on ADV Rider, the forum. That's all in the show notes, along with some photos from his adventures in Cuba in the show notes for this episode on our website, adventureriderradio.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it if anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio.
Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and of course to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this by listening to the show. If you're not doing it already, the show is built on a model of advertising and listener support. We need your support. So drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com, click on support. Anything $10 or more gets you uh, some stickers for your pannier, your toolbox, your motorcycle. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on our Raw show. And mentioning that reminds me to tell you that we have another show that comes out once a month called Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Get it everywhere podcasts are found. But all this information is at our website, adventureriderradio.com. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. I hope you can. I can't because it's just too much snow here right now. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much for listening and I'll talk to you next week. This is Jocelyn Snow, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.